If you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 119. We're going through the Psalms this summer, uh, talking about how the Psalms help give voice to our soul. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 119, which is the Bible's poetic description of the Bible. And it actually helps us understand ourselves, right? Because what we'll find out today is it actually helps us see what gives us the deepest satisfaction. So um, with that, uh, I, I don't know what your first memory of the Bible was. Um, I, I'm tr- I tried this week to remember what exactly was my first memory of the Bible. I, I didn't grow up going to church a lot, so there was a brief stint in Sunday school where I recall a flannel graph. So this is the high-tech uh, version of storytelling where you would take a piece of flannel and put it on another piece of flannel and they were cut out characters. And I had no idea who Abraham was or Jacob or why that mattered at all. Um, there was no cohesive story for me. There were moving flannels. Uh, so <laughs> that was fine. Um, and then, uh, really, I don't have very specific memories of the Bible until about middle school, which I'm deeply grateful for. Um, middle school, for me, was a time of like high insecurity and selfishness, so um, not probably my best moments. I'm sure if you ask my mom, uh, that was probably really hard for her to live through those years. Uh, I do recall um, being at the peak of my annoyingness. You could ask my wife. She would say, I haven't yet peaked, that I'm still... (laughs) She would say, no, no, he didn't peak in middle school. Uh, It's surely been in the last 11 years. Uh, And so anyway, what I recall uh, was a guy named Dan. Uh, I became involved with a church youth group, and there was this guy, Dan. He was a grown-up, but he was the kind of grown-up who willingly gave up weekends and weeknights to hang out with pretty rough punks like myself and my friends. And we, you know, we were not there necessarily for the virtue of it, except for it was another place we could find attention, right? And he was willing to give it generously. What I recall about Dan was that he was actually, he wasn't cool, according to my very uh, prestigious standards as a middle schooler. <laughs> but he was, he was secure, and he was selfless. And he seemed to ooze this book, like it was deep in him, like he knew it and he liked it. And I I just remember that was jarring enough for me to pay attention. There's a secure individual who's selfless, who doesn't make me feel bad for being who I am and wants to be around me and can't stop talking about what he's learning in this story. And so he was the first person that I met that actually embodied the story that he was imbibing, if you will, which is important because my first experience of the Bible in a significant way was an embodied experience. It was embodied in a person who was secure and who was selfless because the story that they had been reading had actually taken root in his life, which means then that my experience of this book was that it was integrated into life and that it was relational because that was how I experienced it. Now, maybe your flavor of the Bible was less uh, uh, winsome. Perhaps uh, it was used abusively in your life by someone who saw it as a weapon to gain control. Uh, Perhaps it was a stuffy thing to ignore. Uh, Maybe it was simply a handbook to life. Use it when 
the tire pressure light goes off, right, in your life. That when you break down, you should go to it because maybe you've screwed up. Or it's a playbook of rules or something like that. What I would say to you is all of those ways of handling Scripture ought to be repented of, right? Because the, the Psalms actually have a very descriptive view of the Scriptures, uh, it's a key theme, actually, in the Psalms. It's woven throughout. Uh, I'm going to geek out with you for just a moment, okay? And we'll get all practical later. But let me just geek with you for a moment on the way the, scripture, the Psalms uh, amplify the theme of God's Word. So if, if you look at the structure of the Psalms, it begins with an introduction to Psalms without a superscript that, you know, like the, all of Book 1 has superscriptions, like a Psalm of David, a Psalm of... Well, they're all Psalms of David, mostly in book one. So these first two Psalms, no superscription, it actually just introduces the themes of the entire book. And so it says, blessed is the man, person who, what? Meditates on the law, is what your English translation says, but the Hebrew word is Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's the instruction, the teaching of Moses. So the person who meditates and thinks about the story up to this point This is the blessed person, right? And then Psalm 2, the blessed person is the one who takes refuge in God's anointed, his Messiah. And so that forms the introduction. Everything that we're to read after that in the book of the Psalms, books 1 through 5, is going to have us relating the story, the scripture, and the Messiah. And we're going to see how those two things carry us from lament to praise. Now, book one has Psalm 19. It talks about how the law of the Lord, the Torah of God, is perfect. It makes wise the simple. It's sweeter than honey. It's better than riches. And sure enough, Psalm 19 is surrounded by descriptions of David the king and a future messianic king. And the the other bookend, book five, so the beginning exalts the word of God. The end also does too. You have Psalm 119 describing the perfections and the goodness of the Torah, and it's surrounded by descriptions of the Messianic king on either end of the psalm. So what is, what is the psalmist doing? The, the final shapers of this book, they're trying to tell you that God's word right, encompasses all of life, right? and that it is uh, actually the bookends that give meaning to our everyday lives. Now, Psalm 119, it's a long one, so we're not going to go verse by verse. It's 176 verses. We wouldn't finish by dinner, right? Uh, so, um, but one, one way you can just uh, uh, geek out just a little bit more, uh, if you want to go back and study Psalm 119, it's 22 stanzas, eight verses each, and each stanza begins with a different Hebrew letter, right? It's literally the alphabet. It's an acrostic psalm, and so it's quite literally the ABCs of Scripture. Like, that is what he's, the, the psalmist is walking you through. And why, why would you make an acrostic poem exalting the goodness of the Bible? Well, he's making a point, right? He's making a point that this, the Scriptures are pervasive. They're all-encompassing. Uh, the Bible isn't meant for one hidden compartment of your private life but that it is uh, 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 containing wisdom for all of life, right? And so uh, Psalm 119 uses eight synonyms to describe the scriptures. They're used throughout the psalm and repeated in just about every stanza. Words like decree, ordinance, 
uh, statute, word, commandment, precept, promise, law, or Torah. There are eight synonymous words to describe the scriptures. Right? That's what the psalmist is talking about. At bottom, what we're getting at here is we're describing God's self-expression, his revelation, because that's what this is. Right? It's personal revelation from a personal God embodied in uh, a, a culturally bound text. And so what we have is a God who reveals. In other words, everything that this points to, we wouldn't figure out on our own through empirical study. Like you can figure out a lot about the world. You can figure out gravity. You can even figure out relativity. But you can't figure out grace apart from revelation, right? We would never come to the conclusion that the God who created the universe and runs it according to wisdom and justice would actually also be a God of profound grace. You wouldn't come to that conclusion in a million years. It's revealed to you. And so God makes himself known in this story. And the, the thing I would say to you this morning is that these 22 stanzas see the word of God as a gift. And this gift helps give voice to our deepest delight. Our deepest delight. So let's look at the psalm here. The deep delight and satisfaction uh, are, are a result of of meditating on and living out God's word. And we see this in the first verses of Psalm 119. Read along with me. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh. Let's just stop right there. The the author opens this psalm with the word blessed. It's the same word that he opens, the, the, the Psalter is opened with. Blessed is the one who, right? doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? But whose meditation is the Torah. Blessed is a word for deeply happy. That's really what it means. It's deeply, richly, completely satisfied. Think of the best day in your life and then keep going. Deeply satisfied. Not just materially, because when we think blessed in America, we think Um, But... Uh, the Hebrew notion would involve some stuff, but it's relational, it's communal, it's good standing and honor in the community, it's right relationship with God, others, self, and creation. Deeply happy relationally. Verse 14 says, I rejoice in following your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. The author is saying that the Bible actually makes his heart glad. Like, how can that be? Because we live in a culture that from our cultural perspective, anything that challenges my own personal autonomy is like inhumane. Like, how dare you speak a should into my life? I'm like, really, we just balk at anything external that posits itself as, a, as authority. We just, we don't like it in our culture. It feels somehow upside down. Um, and yet, the author of Scripture is saying, actually, your law, this thing outside of me, brings the deepest joy within me. Right? This is this paradox for modern people. We just don't know what to do with that. Right? And so, I would say to you, that's the way of God's kingdom. Jesus uses the same language of blessed 
right? He uses the Greek word, but he uses the, nonetheless like the same Hebrew notion of deep happiness and satisfaction when he describes people who enter the kingdom. He says that the truly happy, deeply satisfied ones are the ones who are spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit. Right? They're the ones who are crying and lamenting for what's wrong in them and in the world. They're the meek ones, the humble ones. Right? They're not the steamrollers. It's the ones with an appetite for right relationships and justice. The ones who work to reconcile enemies and who are hated because of their righteousness and justice. See, Jesus says, in other words, that the ones who've made God's story their own story are the ones who are to be considered lucky, happy, deeply satisfied. They're the ones who've uh, actually got it made. It's a total inversion of the values of our world, right? Utterly upside down, or we should say right side up. God's refusal to be silent, his insistence on sharing who he is, who we are, and how we're meant to live in relationship with him is actually a wellspring of satisfaction if we will trust him, if we'll enter that story. So how can the word of God actually be such a joy to us? How does it help give voice to our deepest delight? Um, Well, Let's look at the first two stanzas. We won't get too much further today. Um, I want to show you just four things that I think Psalm 119 is painting a picture of that I think are helpful for us. So let's take a look at the first thing. First, I, I think what Psalm 119 would have us understand is that we are most satisfied when we have illumination. Now, I'm a dad, so I automatically think of minions um, Anybody else? Like, illumination. That's that's all I see. But I knew there was a risk in my own head in bringing that word up. But there is. Um, When we have illumination, that's when we're actually most satisfied. Look at verse 6. The psalmist says, um, again, uh, when the word of God is the narrative for my life, right? It says, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your your commandments, synonym for scripture. Okay, well, why is this important? His eyes are on what God actually says and commands, right? In other words, it's, he's talking about what God says gives him perception. What God says leads to his perception of reality. Um, and that theme of perception is an amplified down in verse 105, and we don't have time to read through that whole stanza, but the psalmist says, your word is a lamp Unto my feet, verse 105. Your, your word is a lamp unto my feet. So not only perception for the eyes, but the word is also light for his feet. In other words, he's saying God illuminates my life. That's what instruction does. It, it illuminates. God's word is this light that shines so that reality can be perceived for what it is. That's why God tells a story. He doesn't just give commands, right? That doesn't actually illuminate your life. It does to some degree to trust that maybe this way is right and this way isn't. But he actually tells a story that frames out our our life and gives meaning. And so when when you're in the dark, right? When you're walking in the dark, uh, say like a forest at night, you don't trust your judgment. Like, I just feel like there isn't going to be a branch there. What happens? Right? Like sometimes your intuition doesn't work, other times it, it does. But right? 
what do you trust? You trust your flashlight. You trust the light. Um, this happened to me when I was a middle school pastor. I took a bunch of kids. I think we had like 60 or 70 kids or so, and we put them in a bus and we drove them to a cave. And when we went into the cave, the ape caves up in Washington, um, I happened to have this headlamp that I had bought years earlier and had never changed the batteries on. Right? And so I am this young youth pastor with all of these parents' kids, and I happen to get down into the dark while my light just gets more dim and more dim and more dim and more dim. I didn't tell the parents about this until years later in another sermon illustration. But um, (laughs) anyways, right? You get down to the bottom and there's no light. This is what Jesus is describing when he says in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is this kind of... Hebrewism uh, for describing this, right? That if the source that provides you insight right, and feeds your perception isn't actually accurate, if it isn't actually illuminated by light, then he says, consider how encompassingly dark your life really is, right? Because your picture of God's going to be off, your picture of your identity is going to be off, right? And so the lens that frames your reality will at best be distorted and at worst be just downright deceived, The problem with the biblical metaphor for light, according to the Gospel of John, is that we actually don't like light. That's actually part of the problem. Uh, John says in John 3, this is the verdict. Here's the reality, guys. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear of their deeds being exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Here's the good news about light, the light of the gospel, the light that illuminates reality for us. That, that, that light exposes evil to heal us of it, not to club us over the head because of it, right? to cleanse us and to forgive us. That's why it's there. And so there's something about walking in your own darkness that you can kind of live with for a while. But I had like 50 or 70 kids in a cave, right? That got my attention. And that, that actually happens to a lot of us in life. That may be happening for some of you. Maybe you, you were kind of living your own story apart from the light of God's word, content with your own kind of self And then maybe kids came along, right? And then you start to realize, like, I think I need some illumination, right? I was out on a bike ride with a friend of mine. He's not, he would say he's an agnostic, right? And we're talking through life together. And he says, you know, the only thing is, I just can't figure out how to impart any moral compass to my kids. I'm like, oh, yeah. So where do you think that impulse comes from? Right? Well, ah, yeah, I don't know. Okay, let's talk about bike parts. Okay, that just got uncomfortable. That's fine. We'll, just, we'll come back to that later. But um, so that's the thing for some of you. Others of you, it's that you've stumbled in the dark, and life's beat you up some, and now you're realizing, my batteries are dim, and I need light. Others of us, maybe marriages had some speckles of light originally, but then 
more and more darkness has crept in. The kids are out of the house and things are unbearable. And so what do we do? We come back to church and we try to figure out we've got to get some light. We need some illumination. And so that's what God's word does. He, he shows us that, uh, what we can't actually see on our own or perhaps what we've refused to see because we were really comfortable with our own dark stuff. And so that's the thing about light. It's never generated by us. It's always external to us. It's from the outside of us, and that enables us to see. So this notion that we all have this spark, we just look inward for light, I, I, I just want to like throw a flag on the field on that one and say, how's that working? Because right? it can get downright dark in there. And so what I would suggest to us this morning is that we need an external light to illuminate our life. And that actually brings satisfaction. Jesus came as a pure act of grace, right? And the Word of God illuminates our life because it actually shines a light on Jesus and what He has done to redeem us. And that's why it brings satisfaction, because it actually brings us to the one who satisfies our souls, who says, come to me. My, my burden's light. My yoke's easy, right? And so that's the first thing. The psalmist would have us understand that satisfaction comes when we have illumination. But it, the second thing we see here is that we're, we are most satisfied when we actually have protection. Um, so it offers illumination, but it also, the word also per, offers protection. Look at verse 9 with me. How, how does a young person, how does a young man keep his way pure? Think about it. What, what is a young person? It's someone with a lot of opportunities in front of them. Right? Their decisions haven't largely been made yet. They have decisions ahead of them. Right? How do they keep their way pure? In other words, how do they keep their life from becoming uh, uh, contaminated and uh, disintegrated? Well, what's the answer? By guarding it according to your word. Right? God's word is protective for us. We're to take God's word and order life accordingly. Um, The Psalms help us when there's sin in our life, right? The Psalms would guide us. Psalm uh, 51 would say to confess it, right? To bring our sin before God, to experience his cleansing and forgiveness, to lean on his character, who by nature wants to bring cleansing and forgiveness. But what what if we can avoid some of the damage of sin? How do we do that? Well, we actually start by looking at what God says. We can actually guard our life. We can actually avoid damage when we let the Bible shape who we are and we let the God revealed in the Bible win our heart and we let the wisdom and instruction of his commands actually guide our steps. And if you're wondering today at all, like how important should the Bible be in my life, I would say look no further than Jesus because he seems pretty important. Um, When Jesus himself experiences temptation, and and the Bible says emphatically that he does, just like you, just like me, he experiences the same, I would say even more intense level of temptation than than us, Um, what does he do? Let's take a look at that. Matthew 4 tells the story that that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the desert, which is both symbolic and literal, right? And symbolic symbolic because he's now redoing what Israel had failed to do and what humanity in the garden had failed to do. So he's led out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days, he was hungry, 
right? So he has physical deprivation, and he's spiritually, I mean, he's, he's under pressure. Now, here's what I would call you to see, that the Son of God, armed with you know, all the resources of heaven, look at how he engages. What does he do? He has two resources supplied to you, actually. He's actually no different than you and I, because he has God's Spirit and God's Word. And so Jesus is there, and the tempter says, hey, if you're the Son of God, right, if you actually have this status as God's anointed king, then tell these stones to become bread, right? Which sounds an awful lot like, didn't God really say not to eat the fruit, right? This is call into question what God has said. And Jesus says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? So he fights scripture with scripture, right? And then he also says, or the devil would say here, I think, all right, I, I can play that game. I can quote the Bible to you and see if we can justify doing what I want you to do with the Bible. So the devil took him to a holy, the holy city, maybe in a vision or something like that, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it's written, right? He quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, right? If you're going to quote the Bible, Jesus, I can quote the Bible too, right? I too can play at that game, thanks to the devil, right? Um, the Bible says God will protect his chosen one. Aren't you his chosen one? Go ahead and jump. But Jesus answered him, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, I, hey, I've read Psalm 91, and I've read it in context of Deuteronomy, right? And so I get it, Satan. Uh, so the word is enough in the face of lack and hunger. It's also coherent in the face of distortion, but it's also authoritative in the face of challenge. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world that are rightfully his, right? And all this I will give you. Right? Without suffering, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, that's a great kind of entertaining story, isn't it? But it's also instructive for us. Like if Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was tempted like we are, and he handled it with Scripture... I would say to you, like, we're not above him, right? Like, we actually need the same resources that he apparently needed. It is written, it is written, it is written. Hugely protective in his life. Now, here's the thing. In my household, three kids, um, none of them have any inherent authority, right? Like, there's, there's a hierarchy in my home, right? There is. I don't, I don't apologize for it. We'll level that out at some point. Um, but at, 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 they just don't have any inherent authority, right? Sorry, you're 10, 7, and 5. Um, we're increasing. We listen. We care. We're sympathetic. But um, they don't really actually have a lot of power that way. And so uh, what they do have is this one phrase that absolutely is a trump card every single time. And it, it's, it's awesome. Because it, it will always surface any lack of communication between my wife and I. And so what happens inevitably is somebody will come into the kitchen right, and say, Hey, um, I'm going to get ice creams out for all of us. Right? What? No, you're not. You can't have ice cream right now. It's, 
It's 10 o'clock in the morning or whatever, you know? That's his dad, always like, no way, uh-uh, no way. I do the grocery shopping, and I'm, I'm rationing out that stuff until the last possible minute. Now, what authority do these kids have to contradict the opposer, right? The Satan, right? <laughs> They've got nothing inherently until they throw down. But mom said. Mom said. Yeah, I, I lose, right? I, at this point, like, I crumble. Like, okay. Like, and then it's always, Lauren, right? You really told them that? You know, so we check it out. But anytime you throw down, mom said or dad said, right, what do they do? They're invoking the authority. And they're actually saying, here's truth, and I'm leaning on it. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm living into it. That's, okay, so here's what happens in our life. In the economy of the spiritual realm, right, you actually you call on the one who has authority. You invoke what he has said. Right? And so when t- temptation comes and says, you won't be satisfied unless you do it this way, you, you tell your soul no. Right? Say, actually, my father says. Right? And when accusation comes, it says, you're actually no good. And you not only... Are you, will you not be happy, but your father's not happy with you? What do you say? No, dad says, dad says he loves me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So you see what we do. The word's protective. It's authoritative in this way. And so we refute accusation, and we turn down temptation by calling out what the father has said. All right. Um, this, this third point that I want to show you is so, it's short, but it's, it's important. You see, this actually requires action on our part, right? Like, it's not all just theory here, right? It's not all just a story to take in. It's a story to live out. And grace enables us to be forgiven, of course, because God gives us himself in grace, but he also empowers us to live a new life in the Spirit, to take what he says into our lives and take root in our hearts and live it out in how we actually live. And so that, that actually requires consistent use of Scripture. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart. I act actively meditate on your precepts day and night. He has a, a habit of study that puts guardrails on his life against the constant threats of the foe of sin, death, and the devil, right? Or the world and the devil. There's this old English preacher, a Puritan named Richard Baxter. And uh, one of the things that he says is this. He says it. It's not the work of the Spirit to tell you the meaning of Scripture and give you the knowledge of divinity without your own study and labor. But the work of the Spirit is to bless that study and give you knowledge thereby. In other words, friends, the Holy Spirit is not a labor-saving device. Okay? Right? The Spirit uses our participation. And so notice how many action words are in the first two stanzas of this psalm. Walk, keep, Follow, obey, consider, learn, seek, meditate. We could keep going. So there's descriptive words on what the word is, but there's action words for what we do. And and this is the third point here, that we're most satisfied when our lives have integration. We're most satisfied when we have illumination and when we have protection, 
But those two things don't get us very far apart from integration. What I mean here is that when there is consistency between the truth we ascribe to and affirm and what we live, then there is actually cause for satisfaction. Right? The psalmist isn't interested in theory. The more we know, the more we're actually accountable to. This is why my father is a genius, because he learned early on, if he says, I don't know how to do that, he's off the hook. No one expects him to do certain things on the computer or on his phone. He's just off the hook. Because he's like, I don't know how to do it. Right? Because he knows the nature of knowledge holds us accountable to it. He's a genius. It's like the guy who breaks dishes their first week of a marriage. He's like, I don't know. I can't wash the dishes, right? <laughs> like, that didn't happen in my house. But, all right. And so our knowledge is actually something we're accountable to. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> because when you have integration, you're no longer hiding anything. You're not living with duplicity in your life. And the more you live with duplicity in your life, the more cynical you become. And cynics are never joyful people. Right? And so we're actually meant to take God at his word and live accordingly. Right? And so that's where Psalm 119 says blessing is found. It's found in integration. Last thing, that we are most satisfied not only when we have illumination, protection, and integration, but when we have connection. Uh, when we have connection. The scripture leads us to lasting satisfaction and delight because it leads us to the God whose nature is satisfaction and delight. When Jesus describes the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's always talking about the delight that the Father has in the Son and that the Son returns to the Father. There's deep satisfaction and joy found in the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Augustine describes the relationality between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and as the Spirit is as the communicator of that love. Right? That, there, that this, this love exists perfectly, and we see it on display when Jesus is baptized, and the Father says to the Son, the Spirit's there, my, this is my Son, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, that the nature of God is this deep satisfaction. And so this Bible is this whole story, this unified story that leads us to Jesus who invites us into relationship with this God of deep satisfaction. You don't get a satisfied, rich, happy life if you're not connected to the God who offers that in his essence and his nature. And so that's what Jesus has come to do, to bring us into intimate connection. The psalmist says, I seek you with all my heart. This isn't a book of rules. It's a God who has revealed himself in a story. And so it's, it's the you, the personal thou that we seek in relationship mediated through a story. And the spirit who authored the story and comes into our life and restories us. And so that's what's happening here. It's a relational engagement. Scripture's not abstract. It's relational and it's concrete. Apple has changed the world. Uh, my wife's out of town. She's visiting her dad in San Diego this week. And something I noticed in thinking about connection this week occurred to me where Apple has literally changed the way we anticipate communication and connection. Have you ever text anybody on an, on an iPhone? And when they're texting you back, what happens? 
as that little writing bubble, right? It's like they're working on something. They're going to send you something. Communication, connection, it's coming. Um, when you're in a fight, like that little bubble says, get ready for your next hit, okay? And like arm up. But when you know you're loved, right? When that bubble is telling you you're about to experience connection, right? That little bubble has you on the edge of your seat, doesn't it? When you know it's that person who's the object of your love and who you are the object of their love. That bubble gets you on the edge of your seat. And what I would encourage you today with is that we have that bubble of connection in spades. We have it here in God's written word. That God would have us on the edge of our seats rereading the story, reengaging the story because it reveals his longing to connect with us. And he's worthy. And he actually would send us to the table today as a way of saying, I've connected to you. You don't have to connect to me. I have made the first move and I've provided all that's necessary to have meaningful connection to the God who made you, who holds you together. That is what Colossians 1 says about Jesus, that in him all things hold together. We can't have integration apart from connection to the one who integrates us and holds us together. So we go to the table and we celebrate that he has paid the price of connection to overcome unholiness with his holiness, to overcome sin with forgiveness, to overcome death with resurrection. He says, come to the table, feast on the connection I offer you, and let it bring satisfaction to your soul. Let's pray.